Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limore, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at EPFL in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to Rachel Pels about the new book, Genomics, How Genome Sequencing Will Change Healthcare. Genome sequencing is one of the most exciting scientific breakthroughs of the past 30 years. But what precisely does it involve, and how is it developing? Rachel Pels addresses the fundamental question, to what extent will future advances transform human longevity and the quality of life? Rachel, welcome to the show. Hi, Galena, how are you? Okay, so can you tell us a little bit about yourself? What do you do? Uh, Sure, so I'm a freelance journalist. Um, I'm based in London in the UK. And I write about science and research mainly um, for mostly for newspapers and magazines and recently for books as well. And how did you get interested in journalism? Um, Yeah, that's a good question. I've always enjoyed writing, um, even from when I was very small. um, I loved writing stories and it just, yeah, sort of felt natural, I think. I, I don't know if there was ever a moment when I decided, yes, I'm going to be a journalist, but um, I did English literature in school and then I did a master's degree in journalism after that. Um, started doing some internships and eventually got a job in journalism. And yeah, I love it. I, um, yeah, haven't looked back. And what brought you to science journalism? Yeah, the funny thing is, I, I wasn't very good at science in the school. Um, I don't know. It's <laughs> my parents sort of laugh at the fact that I'm now a science journalist. Um, so I, I think I, I've always been interested in science, but um, you know, maybe when you're younger, biology and chemistry for me was sort of taught in a way that it didn't have much connection to the real world um you know you just follow a textbook a lot of the time um so I didn't do I don't have a science background as such but um the long story short is that I um I had a job as a journalist obviously in um for a an education magazine called Times Higher Education and um my role there was to write about um research from the perspective of the researchers themselves so life as like an as an academic um and that was really enjoyable for a couple of years but I found myself increasingly interested in 
you know, wanting to write about and wanting to learn about the actual science rather than writing about the process of doing the science, if that makes sense. Um, I just had, I was meeting so many interesting people um, working in sciences and I just really wanted to, yeah, to, to write about that directly and sort of explore some of the big things that are um, impacting the world. Um, so yes, then I went freelance. Um, I left my job at Times Higher so that I could pursue um, this sort of broader remit looking at science. And um, yeah, I, um, I think I, I, yeah, I used to have a slight imposter syndrome about it. You know, I don't come from a science background, but I do think that there is value in being a layperson almost because I can hopefully translate the science in a way that makes it accessible to most people, if that's um, a very long-winded way of answering you. Hmm. And I was wondering then, do you enjoy this kind of process of discovery? Because as I imagine, you have to learn about all different scientific fields if you're writing an article. Yeah, I think um, the, well, I have a lot of admiration for um, the, the real, the researchers themselves, because um, I think one of the good things about being a journalist is that you can dip into lots of different subjects. Um, you know, you don't have to commit your entire career to finding out the answer to one thing. Um, so I really enjoy sort of learning about lots of different new things um, and yeah, keeping it sort of broad um, within science, obviously, but um, it's, yeah, it's interesting. And um, there's, there's so much to discover. It's um, yeah, there's, there's never an opportunity to get bored with it. And what would you say to our student listeners and maybe early career people who might have not had best grades in biology and chemistry when they were in school, but still are interested in having something to do with science? Yeah, of course. I think, um, well, I'm, I'm living proof that um, you can definitely have a career in um, that sort of relates to science, you know, you can translate the science, you can be involved um, without being a scientist. Um, I think there's, yeah, there's a really sort of important role um, in translating the science that happens. A lot of it um, sort of gets missed um, by the public because, you know, scientists are busy, they're actually in the lab or they don't necessarily have the skills that it takes to um, talk about it openly. Um, so yeah, I think I think science journalism is um, a really nice sort of crossover between those two worlds. You know, you can be a writer and enjoy the art um, while also um, learning about science and, and sort of learning, uh, you know, being involved from that perspective. So your new book is Genomics, How Genome Sequencing Will Change Healthcare. And how did you come to writing it? Um, well, it started with a, an article that I wrote for Wired magazine back in, I think, 2018 or 19. I should check that. Uh, it was back in 2019. Um, I Yes, this was actually the first article that I pitched as a freelance journalist. Um, it was, this is all relevant, I promise. <laughs> it was about, um, there's some research going on in the Francis Crick Institute in London, um, where I live, um, where 
the cancer researchers are um, taking quite an unusual step in they're using autopsy. So from dead bodies uh, of people who sadly died of cancer, they um, get their consents when they are alive and they can take samples from their bodies when they passed away and um, use genetic se genomic sequencing um, to basically kind of uncover some of the secrets about how cancer works. And it's a really interesting project. Um, it's called the Peace Project, if anybody is interested in um, reading about it. Um, and that was my first introduction to genomics. I don't think I really had heard of it properly before then. Um, but of course, that opened up this whole other world. Um, you know, the technology can be applied across so many different subjects. And um, luckily for me, Wired were um, running this, planning a series of books, um, a sort of short introduction to lots of big topics. And they asked if I'd be interested in writing one. So I said, of course, and um, suggested genomics as a potential topic. All right, so let's dive into the book. And can we start with the very basics? So what is genomics? <laughs> um, so genomics is the study of all of our thousands of genes. Um, so a genome is um, basically a map of all of those genes and all of the billions of DNA that we have, um, all of our biological coding and information, um, everything that's you know, just that go around our bodies and the things that sort of make us human is the way that I like to think about it. Um, genomics is the study of all of that. So the sort of uncovering of um, what our DNA is up to, what it all means, how it pieces together and learning more about how, um, yeah, learning more about ourselves, I think is um, a good way of looking at it. And how did it all start? Um, genomics, yeah, it's it's actually not very old at all. Um, this is the thing. So a lot of people, when I talk about it, they'll say, oh, I feel silly because I've never actually heard of it or they might've heard of it, but they don't know much about genomics. Um, and I think that's totally reasonable because genomics hasn't really been around for that long. Um, it sort of started in 1990, there was a big, moonshot initiative called the Human Genome Project. And it was backed by the US and the UK governments and a few places after that. And basically they wanted to create a map of all of the genes that um, make us human and have it on a record. So create like a blueprint um, of our bodies. And it was a massive project. Um, it cost close to $3 billion and it involved researchers from all over the world all working together to produce this big map. Um, and they did it um, sort of collaboratively over about 10 years. They thought it would take a lot longer, but um, it became quite competitive towards the end. Um, people wanted to, to get it wrapped up before um, some private companies could sort of take it over. Um, and yeah, the result is that we have this full map of the human genome. It's been um, replaced since then. You know, we've got uh, much more adept and much faster at um, sequencing um, our DNA. So the map is much more detailed now. Um, but it, yeah, it took, so I think the fact that it took sort of thousands of researchers um, all across the world and 
industry as well getting involved I think it's um something to celebrate it's a really interesting um sort of yeah team science example I think yeah the human genome project it was a big deal wasn't it when it was uh, finished <laughs> yeah definitely I can sort of well I don't remember it but I, I've seen um you know the clips of I think the world leaders like Tony Blair and George Bush kind of coming out onto the stage and announcing it and there was a kind of excitement at the time I think you know we've cracked the code and we're going to suddenly be able to solve all of our health problems and um, create perfect children and all of these things um, you know it hasn't happened quite yet but it's definitely getting there I think you know genomics is, um, is really helping to further our understanding of um, a lot of the world. So what are some of the tools that researchers and scientists use uh, in uh, genomic, genomic technology, basically? Oh, <laughs> you mean um, like the actual sort of machinery? Um, yeah, that is very complicated. And I, I do sort of touch on it in the book, but I don't know if I'm the best person to explain because it's so complicated. I think to an outsider as a sort of non-scientist, um, but the way that I, you know, in very layperson's terms, the way I'll describe it is they can take a sample of um, your blood or sometimes saliva and run it through this machine, which will sort of um, map out to show you, you know, all the base pairs of the DNA, um, which they can then sort of piece together um, to work out what goes where. Um, does that answer your question? Uh, yeah, for sure. So they use um, um, sort of uh, those sequencing uh, machines to sequence DNA, and then it has to be combined with the computational power as well, isn't it, to reconstruct it all? Yeah, so a lot of it's automated now, and that's um, made a really big difference because back in the day, you know, researchers would sit and do this by hand, which would take a very long time. But now we have computers to do a lot of that Um quite sort of mundane work for us um, and in terms of tools they there are lots of um, advances that are happening um, so you've probably heard of CRISPR um, which is the well one of several tools now that allows us to actually go into um, a sort of strand of DNA and edit it um, which is very exciting. So how did genomics find its way into our healthcare and how we think about our health? Yeah, I think um, several ways. Um, the technology is obviously fairly new, but there are lots of different applications of it already. Um, so the fact that we have the map of our, our um, human genome means that when people carry certain um, health conditions, um, scientists can actually see which mutations um, are responsible and where they are in our genome. And because we know we can pinpoint that, it means that we can potentially go in and change that particular bit of coding and therefore you know, eradicate the disease, maybe um, find better ways of treating it, um, which all sounds very much like science fiction, but it's, it's possible. Um, it's not... It, it's tricky. It's, um, you know, they are starting to bring out lots of treatments, certainly in the way of um, like cancer therapies. Um, but we at the moment, we're not, um, the, say we, 
at the moment, um, scientists are not going into edit the human um, DNA itself um, because we don't know the long-term sort of consequences of that always. It's, um, it's still something that, you know, it's a case of the science is um, maybe a little bit further ahead than our um, ethical and moral understanding of it, if that makes sense. Um, I can give you a good example. There's um, so cystic fibrosis. Um, it's um, caused by a single gene mutation. And it means that scientists can actually see exactly um, where the problem lies, if you like. Um, and in the future, um, even now, a baby could be born and they could have um, a little tiny blood test and they can, um, you know, they can see whether they are carrying this disease, whether they're likely to be um, impacted by it. And potentially that means that if a baby is born with cystic fibrosis now, they um, we could sort of make them undergo a certain procedure, a surgical procedure to eradicate it, and then they'll live a full and healthy life, um, which on paper sounds fantastic. Um, but there are lots of, of course, of questions around that because a lot of people who live with diseases and other disabilities will argue that actually their lives are very valuable. And once we start deciding which disability is okay and which one isn't, it's a really, um, really tricky issue. So yeah, to answer your question, there are lots of ways in which genomics is impacting our health. Um, some of the things we are a little bit far away from at the moment, but it's definitely making a difference in terms of um, the medications that we can receive and how we can see exactly how effectively medicines are um, affecting our genome personally. So the differences in treatment between you and me, for example. So it's kind of paves the way for the personalized medicine, doesn't it? Exactly. Yeah. And that's, that's the big dream is that one day, um, perhaps we'll all be on this kind of database um, where we'll all have our DNA sequenced. And it means that when we go to the doctors to, um, you know, to get them to prescribe something for a problem, they can possibly just check that against this database and um, work out, okay, well, this medicine will work well for you for these reasons this one not so much and it means that hopefully we'll recover from things quicker we'll have um, a much faster process um, in being treated for things as well and um, public health care will be more efficient that's the dream anyway we're still getting there yeah it's really interesting how genomics uh, can contribute to um, sort of finding out and alleviating some of the suffering because of due to the monogenic uh, diseases. So are we able to quantify risks of these diseases that can be caused by multiplicity of genes and their interactions using, using genom genomics or not yet? Yes. Um, let me just find my answers. Um, so it's yes, to answer your question. Um, there's such a thing as um, a polygenic risk score, um, which um, are used by some companies to uh, sort of indicate the likelihood of gene mutations um, 
for example, um, for couples going through IVF, they can look at the likelihood of um, one of their embryos carrying um, different mutations that are possibly inherited. Um, um, so there are there are sort of used in other areas of biology to determine sort of how an organism's health compares to another's. So you can have this polygenic score um, to sort of help um, improve the chances of, of um, a healthy organism. Um, a better way of explaining it, um, so they actually already use polygenic scores for um, selective breeding in livestock, for example. Farmers can um, have a sort of score to determine, okay, this is a, a healthy animal for these reasons. This one carries a risk of carrying these diseases. So we'll use this healthier animal to breed with. Um, you can see where it becomes a little bit difficult when we start to try and apply that to humans, because um, again, there are lots of ethical um, quandaries there. Um, and it's worth saying as well that polygenic risk scores are, you know, they are just a score. They don't take into account um, the environmental impact that's um, the environmental um, reasons for health problems. So we, you know, we can develop a disease or um, some condition because um, it's in our genes, but that is also impacted by our diet and our lifestyle um, by our level of poverty, um, lots of other things. So it's it's very much not a perfect system. So it all has to be taken in the context, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's a good example to sort of show that yes, this is a whole new area of research, and there are te technology can be really helpful in um, answering lots of health questions. But it's not um, a one size fits all solution. It's not this sort of magic silver bullet that's going to solve all of our health problems. We have to also um, concentrate on improving people's lifestyles and um, general well-being. Hmm. And coming to these factors which are outside our bodies, so how can genomics contribute to, for example, agriculture? Hmm. Good question. Um, that's really exciting. I mean, on the one hand, it's um, quite bleak. You'll probably have seen the statistics um, saying that I think the UN sort of warns that because we're going to have a global population of about 10 billion people by 2050, there's going to be potentially um, a really big food security issue, you know, food shortages by that point if we need to feed all these people. We're also battling climate change. Um, so genomics can help in quite a few ways here. And it's it's really exciting. It's already taking place in countries across Africa, for example. They can um, use gene editing um, to make certain crops and food items um, grow better. So there are different strands of corn now that have been sort of um, artificially, you know, genetically um, modified so that they can resist um, extreme heat, for example. That means that if there's a drought, um, they are at less risk of having a famine because they will still be able to feed people. Um, really simple stuff, but that's also applicable in other areas. You know, we can go and into tomato plants now and um, they make them sort of you know, genetically modify them so that they can um, contain vitamin D. 
that's their way of making them more nutritious. Um, it's really exciting. I think it's still, again, it's um, interesting that Europe in particular is not, um, not so much behind gene editing of crops yet because they are, it's, it sort of carries a lot of um, taboo still. People a few years ago were worried about the health consequences of um, quote unquote messing with nature in this way. But, you know, the WHO has confirmed that there is no health risk to um, genetically modified foods. It's all very safe if it's properly. And it's also going to be necessary, I think, in the future, because if we are going to make sure that we all have enough food, um, especially with climate change um, impacting the way that we grow things and our different climates, um, changing the food that we can grow, uh, we're going to have to turn to science to um, help tweak little things in the genome of those plants just to make sure that they continue to thrive and um, that we can continue to eat them. Um, so, yeah, there's lots going on. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's something that I think Europe is um, considering, um, I should say. <laughs> hmm. And perhaps uh, precision editing technologies like CRISPR for example, they maybe even have much better possibility to be accepted, I suppose, by uh, our governments and uh, people because you're not putting something extra into the organism. You're just tweaking the sequence a little bit. Yeah, I think so. I think um, in the past, people have had this, um, they've been maybe scared of the idea of genetic modification because uh you know you've probably seen cartoons like on the simpsons where there's a three-eyed fish and people have these ideas um about what genetic modification is whether it's creating something really alien um but actually a lot of the time it's just as you say it's just using things like crispr to um snip a little bit of the dna coding in a plant um you could go in you could introduce um a gene that um, makes it more resistant to drought. And it's not so it's not unnatural um, per se. It's it's just, I guess, giving nature a helping hand. Um, but some people would disagree. <laughs> yeah, for sure. And hopefully that can contribute to more sustainable agriculture as well, isn't it? Exactly. It's it makes um, the carbon emissions from farming um, much more. It, it can reduce the carbon emissions in farming because it's more streamlined. It's more efficient. There's less time wasted on crops and management of different um, foods that don't work out. So, yeah, it's better for the planet as well. So then how can genomics contribute to our battle with the change in our climate? Yeah, hopefully um, in several ways. Um, so we've already mentioned um, the crops and, and agriculture. Um, there's also a lot of research happening in plants, um, you know, biotechnology, um, in the same way that we can edit these crops to be more nutritious or withstand um, drought and flooding and things. Um, we can also give plants a helping hand to suck up more carbon in the atmosphere. Um, so there's a really interesting project taking place in California right now um, called 
Um, it's just completely skipped my mind. I will find out. <laughs> There's a really interesting, uh, oh, it's the California Institute of Technology. Um, they are, they have this project where they can um, go into the genome of certain plants and um, encourage them to selectively breed, if you like. They'll, they'll sort of encourage selective breeding of plants that already carry um, this ability to suck up more carbon from the atmosphere than other plants. So if the idea is that if they can encourage more of those plants to be born with this particular gene, plants will automatically become better at carbon capture. Um, they can also um, do it so that plants, um, you know, they improve the soil that they're in because they are also holding a lot more of that carbon in the soil. It's, um, yeah, there are lots of different, like, lots of potential avenues for this. Um, in coral reefs, for example, um, again, it's, it's all sort of derived from things that already naturally occur. So there are certain corals that can withstand um, heat better than others. And that's going to be really useful for when um, sea temperatures rise, as they are in a lot of tropical places. Um, so if scientists can work out exactly what genes the plants have that make them better at withstanding that heat, they can selectively breed and encourage more plants to be born with those particular um, traits and therefore kind of just help them along to make sure that they continue to, to survive and to thrive and and therefore there's a knock-on effect so if we can protect corals we can protect the rest of the reef and all of the organisms that um, live on that reef uh, it's it's all connected mm, yeah and uh, now thinking about the change in climate and changing um, uh, habitats, especially of mosquitoes, for example, the ones uh, who can carry diseases like malaria. So genomics can also help uh, in that battle as well, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, so that's the whole, um, yeah, there's so many different avenues on there to talk about. Um, so mosquitoes, um, scientists are editing them to, uh, you can prevent them from carrying malaria, um, which obviously kills millions of people. Um, and that's because they have been, well, A, sequencing the um, genome of um, the disease itself, and also um, they can sequence the mosquitoes to work out what it is about them that allows them to carry this disease. And they can edit it out if they want to. And that's huge and really um, impactful for human health. Um, but the question is whether it would throw our ecosystem out of whack. So, um, example, you know, mosquitoes are just one example, but um, there is a lot of scientists do sort of warn that if we change one thing, we don't always know what the consequences are. A lot of the time, when um, particularly when it comes to viruses and things um, and even in ourselves and humans when our genes um, you know, seemingly go wrong um, it's not always that they are going wrong it's just a part of the evolution um, you know there might be a reason why or another benefit as to why we've evolved that way so there might be evolutionary reasons why mosquitoes have um, become able to carry malaria and if we remove that ability who knows are we going to then um sort of unbalance the uh, the ecosystem 
Um, it's a really interesting question. Um, like, an, like a lot of things, we haven't been experimenting with gene editing for very long, so we don't know the sort of long-term consequences of this. Um, but I have no doubt that in the next few years, some very clever people will be able to forecast things a lot better and, and we might be able to say, yes, great, let's eradicate malaria by editing it out of mosquitoes um, or not. Yeah, and it really underlines the complexity of all of it. And even when you have the mosquito that has uh, the bacterium that uh, transmits the malaria, you have to look at the carrier as well, like a human who have different genetics, their genomes are different. And if they have one allele of the sickle cell disease, they have different susceptibility, isn't it? So you have to look at the whole, like the whole environment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's all, we're all connected, it's all interconnected and um, we don't know the full picture of um, our sort of evolutionary um, reasons for that. Um, there's another good example, actually. Um, there was a story, I think, in The Atlantic um, that I was reading recently um, about a man in Canada who had this very rare and horrible disease. Um, it's called cystinosis. And I think he would have he would have died from it eventually anyway. It's um, a horrible disease we don't have a cure for. So he volunteered to take part in this uh, quite experimental treatment. Um, a gene therapy where basically scientists um, can try and reintroduce the working gene to replace um, the defective one, the, the one that causes this disease. And so he, he took part and a lot of the symptoms that he suffered from eased up. But then there was this really unexpected result in that he, you know, he was originally naturally very blonde. And that at the end of this, his treatment, his hair completely changed colour. So I think it fell out and it came back really dark brown, um, almost black. Um, and that is, it's, you know, it's just a story. It doesn't um, matter too much. I mean, hopefully he didn't mind too much that his hair changed colour. Um, it's seemingly just an aesthetic thing. But it does just goes to show that we don't always know the outcomes of changing things in our DNA. Um, you know, it's just hair color, but we don't know that if we were to remove one thing or replace it um, with a different thing, um, it could have a potentially an adverse effect um, on something that's actually really useful for the rest of our bodies. So, yeah, it's a very long winded way of saying that um, it, it's a very um, fine balance and, and we don't know exactly how it works yet. So we have to be quite careful. Mm, for sure. And this brings me to my next question about the ethics and uh, something that you mentioned earlier. So for the humans, it's really a taboo to edit our genome um, in the germline, basically, so in germline cells. But something like that happened, hasn't it, recently? Yes, there's quite a famous case. Um, as a scientist in China uh, called He Jiangqiu who he actually went to prison because he um, announced kind of out of the blue at this um, international conference that he had, um, he said, successfully edited um, this, uh, some embryos. And um, you know, his the reason being that he uh, was experimenting, he wanted to um, prove that there was a way to make sure humans um, 
we could edit out the ability for humans to develop um, and carry HIV. Um, and he succeeded. Uh, he said that these twin baby girls were born and um, they were healthy, but the scientific community was horrified because he'd crossed this line um, by editing the actual embryos of these babies. And the difference is um, that, so this is germline editing. Um, you know, our sperm and egg cells are where all of our genetic information is carried down through the generations. Um, so if you edit an embryo, um, that's, difference will be passed on to the next generation whereas um, with somatic editing so if you that's when you edit a person after they've been born so that's um, you know surface level if you like that change wouldn't be carried down through the generations it's only by editing the sort of the the germline um, that that change could take place so he's effectively he's he's messed with nature you know he's he's changed um the natural path of evolution um in a way and the problem with that is we just don't know the full impacts of that we don't know what it means for these two girls we don't know what it means for their descendants a hundred years thousand years down the line um because it's just so new um you know there are lots of things to to talk about and, and lots of policies we need to work out um but we haven't really had the opportunity to explore them yet um everyone's heard of designer babies as well um and that's a similar a similar thing it's this idea of you know where do we draw the line um what one person thinks is okay is different to what another person thinks is okay this scientist hey jank I'm sure he thought that he was doing a really good thing for science, but um, he sort of didn't have the permission from the rest of the world to potentially change our, um, our species, if that makes sense. Mm, and perhaps this incident really demonstrates that scientists take this very seriously, don't they? Oh, definitely. Yeah, it's... Yeah, I think it's safe to say he's um, unusual. I think <laughs> there are obviously a lot of people working in this, and I think most of them are obviously very um, careful and wary about the possible outcomes of um, editing our genes. Um, there is some regulation, so a lot of countries um, have some laws that basically states that you can edits an embryo in the lab sometimes um but only for you know that sort of scientific uh, research purposes you can't edit um an embryo in outside in the real world you can't um do that yet it's only that somatic editing the surface level editing that we can do um but there's still lots of things to discuss and it's not you know, there's not really anything stopping someone if they had the capabilities to do this. There's no, there's no way we can stop people um, apart from lay down the law. Um, so it's a, it's a sort of exciting, but also quite scary prospect, I think. Yeah, perhaps we'll need to have more conversations, will we? Yeah, for sure. I think that's the important thing, isn't it? Um, it's, it's about sort of making 
making it clear the implications as well as the benefits of this kind of technology and talking to the public about it as well so that they feel involved and they don't feel scared by it. Um, I know in the UK um, and in some other countries as well, um, there's something called a citizen's jury, um, which is part of a citizen's assembly, um, where experts are bringing together different sort of representatives, so members of the public, um, and they might be medical patients um, living with certain conditions, for example, but also lay people, people who don't um, have a scientific background necessarily. And the idea is they bring them together in a room and just talk it all out um, to try and get a more rounded picture of how people, the public feel about it and what their concerns are. And the idea um, in the UK, um, this is being run with um, the Society of um, Ethics. And the idea is that we will be able to write some policy around that. um, So based on what the public thinks. I don't know if it's a perfect system because it's still a small sample, um, but at least it's a step towards making this um, a sort of a joint public endeavor you know it's i think what turns people off um the science is when they feel like they don't have a say or they don't have any control over what's happening um so i think as long as governments are just being really transparent and t- talking to the public about it then that's the yeah that's the best way forward Oh, yeah, for sure. And perhaps education also plays a role here. And uh, with people not being sort of patronizing to others who do not perhaps understand all the underpinnings of scientific field, but they still have intelligence to understand if it's presented well. Yeah, of course. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm that person as well. I'm not a scientist, like I said, but it's, I can still be interested in it. It's, I think um, people are really willing and interested in it, um, but it is a really complicated um, and yeah, it's it's a very deep and complex um, science when you really sort of look into how it will work. So it's understandable that people don't know about it or exactly what it all means, what the terms mean. Um, Yeah, it's it's like a lot of things. It's probably easy if you're working in it and you already know about it all but for us outsiders it's it's very um it's very reasonable to admit that you don't really understand what's going on um, I think uh, I felt the same way a few years ago <laughs> so where do we go from here what's the perspectives uh, for the near and maybe far future in terms of where we go with um allowing genomics sort of into our lives um yeah, I think I think we sort of proceed with caution um, is the answer. I mean, hopefully these civic um, discussions, the the people's sub juries, will help to um, at least show decision makers how people feel about it. Um, but you know, at the same time, we have to kind of push forward with the science. Um, I think one researcher sort of put it to me: we would regret it if we were too cautious you know if we for example with climate change yes okay if we're editing the genomes of some plants some people might say oh but that's not natural we don't know what's going to happen what's the outcome of that will be in the long run but actually we don't have that much time to try and counteract climate change so 
maybe our future selves would regret it if we didn't start experimenting now. Um, it's different with humans, obviously, but it's it does it does go to show, you know, we have this uh, knowledge, and you can't put the genie back in the bottle. You can't pretend that we don't have the knowledge now. You know, it's here, so we have to embrace it to an extent. Um, we just have to make sure that the way we do that is done in a really fair and transparent way um, and involves as many different people as possible. And what would you would like to see in the future of genomics? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I'd like, yeah, I'd love to be able to, I'd hope that it would sort of improve just our general um, health and well-being. I, I do like the idea um, of having all our genome sequenced on a database so that my doctor could tell me, you know, even just this hay fever medicine will be good for you and this one won't. That would be great, just so that we don't waste so much time <laughs> and money on, uh, on things that don't work. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's really exciting. You know, I, I do, I'm aware that um, I keep talking about the ethical consequences and I do sort of put lots of caution into the book when I write about it, but overall I am really optimistic. I think it's a fantastic technology. Um, there are lots of benefits and, and positives to be gained from it. Um, I also feel very positive about the changes that are taking place in, um, you know, in terms of plants and climate change. And um, I think, yeah, it's all very exciting. I'm not convinced by um, designer babies, but, you know, <laughs> that's a whole different ballpark. Yeah, perhaps uh, in the conservation movement, genomics can also play some role, for example, preserving some of the species that we are really losing very fast, some of them. Yeah, for sure. It's, um, it's again, it's a really um, interesting example. Um, you might have heard about, there's a man called George Church in the US um, who's, well, he, he wants to bring back the woolly mammoth, um, which has been extinct for have many thousands of years and when I first read that like a lot of people I thought well that's just insane why would you why would you bother <laughs> you know you can maybe try and trying to preserve uh species that are in danger now is one thing but why would you bring back this ancient animal um but actually um it's a very it's a very interesting case because uh so woolly mammoths they had played quite an important role in um, the sort of preservation of the permafrost in Siberia because they would trample down on all of these um, plants and things, and that sort of condensed the ice and it all the nutrients all kind of stayed and in, into the ground. I'm telling this in a very um, bad way, but you know that's the that's the idea, and that's why uh, one of the many reasons why they were very useful for the environment they lived in um we obviously now have a huge problem with the melting of permafrost in the northern hemisphere um so george church is saying well we could actually bring back sort of arctic elephants um using elephants um certain species of elephants and introduce these um certain traits um to create a sort of super species um, of elephant slash mammoth that would thrive 
in that environment and once again help to condense the permafrost. So you can see the argument. Um, yeah, again, it's a bit sci-fi, but there are lots of possibilities and maybe one day it won't seem too crazy. Oh, wow. I never knew about the role of mammoths in uh, preserving permafrost. <laughs> no, me neither. No, you just think of them as, as these kind of cartoon characters and it's yeah but actually they uh like like a lot of animals they had a really important role so yeah conservation is is definitely going to be important and hopefully that's something genomics can help with so we already discussed some of it but just uh, thinking about the bigger picture and your reflections of how is genomics important in our lives and how will it be important later on for the whole of our society well, I think we've touched on a lot of ways, but, um, you know, in terms of our health, it's going to be really important. Um, it's it's already helping researchers in the way of you know, cancer research to work out um, the ways that cancer spreads, for example. It's going to hopefully help us to live longer and healthier lives. Um, but it's also, it's not just about us directly right it's about the environment and if it means that we can perhaps start to undo some of the damage that we've kind of um, done to the planet over the last um, couple of hundred years through you know industri industrial um, revolutions and all that stuff then that's going to be a really positive thing um, in my mind you know maybe <sighs> Maybe on the one hand, it does feel unnatural to go editing and changing things, but actually we've already changed so much about our planet. So if it means that we can change things in a way that brings it back to how it should be, um, kind of redresses that balance, then that's, that's got to be a good thing. Oh, that's an excellent point. And even thinking about our agriculture and our domesticated animals, they're so different to their ancestors. Yeah, of course, we've been, this is the thing, we've been, we've been genetic editing in a sense, or we've been selectively breeding for centuries. Um, so it's, it's kind of a part of, of who we are as, as, you know, as humans, it's part of uh, all of our cultures to do that. Um, so we can't really say that this is, obviously, it's a new technology, comparatively, but it's not a new concept. Um, so when you think about it like, like that, maybe it is kind of natural to, well, it's a natural part of human um, curiosity, isn't it? To, to want to um, selectively breed and, and make our lives um, better, even if it's just by, um, yeah, having pedigree pets. <laughs> <laughs> and what discoveries in your research uh, during writing your book, Genomics, surprised you the most? I think just the scale of it, you know, I, I had no idea. I knew that um, this was something that was being used in um, health research for sure, but I just had no idea of the sort of scale of the impact. You know, there's so many things as well that I couldn't include in the book because I only had so many words um, that I could use. It's so many other industries I'd love to write more about you know they use it um now in forensics um in solving crimes for example um it's it's such a interesting case of I don't think I can think of any other example of a technology that it can be so widely applied to so many different areas um yeah it's it's just huge 
And did you have your genome sequenced? Did you want to see maybe if you were susceptible to caffeine addiction or something like that? <laughs> yeah, I did. I actually, um, I actually got it sequenced um, a few years ago for a different news story that I was writing. Um, and I sort of forgot about it or, you know, I tucked it away for a while. And so when I was writing this book, I thought, oh, I wonder if I have the login. I'll go and see, look into my data again. And uh, it's really funny. It's such a, I mean, it's it's really useful on the one hand, you know, it can tell you, um, luckily I apparently don't carry like the BRCA1 or 2 genes that um, can lead to breast cancer. That's really fantastic to know. Um, but it also tells you all sorts of things um, that I had never thought about. Like for example, whether you have wet or dry earwax, um, whether you can smell asparagus in your urine, apparently that's a genetic trait. Um, so many things, uh, which, and those are clearly the most sort of useless things that have stuck in my brain. <laughs> there are plenty more, but uh, but yeah, it's interesting. I think that's yeah, more and more people are doing it, aren't they? It's a very fun exercise. Um, I think people are naturally curious about what it is that makes them unique, and yeah having your genome sequence like that is um, definitely one way of finding out. Well, this has been a fascinating and very informative discussion. So what are you working on now and what will be your next project? Oh, well, um, yeah, well, I'd like to write another book one day, but um, so I actually wrote two at once during a pandemic and that was quite intense. So I'm very much enjoying a bit of a break from books for now. Um, I'm still writing articles about science and research for magazines like Wired. Um, and I will definitely continue to do that over the summer. Um, but it's nice to take a bit of a break from, uh, from book work. Um, I've been doing lots of publicity for it. Um, as I mentioned, the uh, learning about how to do a TikTok and all of that kind of thing. Um, so yes, for, for now, I think I'm just going to um, maybe take a holiday and take on some lighter work. <laughs> work on those dance moves. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> And what's the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your book? Thanks. Yeah, um, you can find me on Twitter. Um, that's probably the best way of getting me. I'm just at Rachel Pels. And the book is called Genomics, How Genome Sequencing Will Change Our Lives. It's published by Penguin Cornerstone. Um, you can buy it. You can see different ways to buy it on the Penguin website. But it's in all... Um, well, in the UK, it's in all good bookshops and it's online on Amazon, um, Hive, all of the usual places. Excellent. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. It's been really fun. <laughs>